0: Well, good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the uh, Atlantic Council's Rafik Hariri Center for the Middle East. My name is Fred Hoff. I'm the center's director. I'd also like to welcome you on behalf of the World Bank, which partnered with the Hariri Center to organize this event. The Hariri Center is very, very grateful to the bank for its outstanding collaboration. Our event today marks another milestone in the unfolding of a very important Atlantic Council and Rafiq Hariri Center project, the Middle East Strategy Task Force. Co-chaired by former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright and ex-National Security Advisor Stephen Hadley, this task force is not one of those shake and bake think tank initiatives purporting in an election year to tell the next president of the United States what to do about the Middle East. It's not one of those. The task force has been at work for a year and a half. The final report of the co-chairs will not be about devising a U.S. strategy for the region. Rather, it will reflect a very well-informed attempt to articulate a strategy for the region drawn in large measure from the region. Yes, the US and other stakeholders can help. And yes, much more than security issues are at stake. Five thematic working groups were established, security and public order religion, identity, and countering violent extremism, governance and state-society relations, economic recovery and revitalization, and rebuilding societies, refugees, recovery, and reconciliation. Our panel today deals with how the World Bank, the humanitarian community, and the private sector all work to support refugees. Three individuals who have been central to the task force effort are on today's panel. Dr. Jessica Ashu is, has been central to the task force effort as the deputy director of the task force. She'll moderate today's discussion. Manal Omar, Associate Vice President of the Center for Middle East and North Africa of the U.S. Institute of Peace, has chaired the task force's working group on refugees. And Chris Schroeder, a world-class entrepreneur, venture investor, and author, has headed up the economic recovery working group. We're deeply grateful for their hard work and insight. We're also honored to have with us today, Dr. Matthew McGuire, U.S. Executive Director at the World Bank. He's had a very distinguished career in the private, nonprofit, and now public sector, moving from a senior position in the Department of Commerce to the bank in 2015, where he represents the United States. Thank you, Dr. McGuire, for your superb public service and for being with us today. Whether you are with us here in the audience or watching on the webcast, you can join the conversation and submit questions via Twitter, at ACMideast with hashtag ACMEST. That's at AC Mideast with hashtag AC MEST. So it's my privilege now to turn matters over to our moderator, my valued and esteemed colleague, Dr. Jessica Ashu.
1: Thank you so much, Fred, for that very generous introduction, and uh, thank you to the rest of our panelists for being here today, and thank you all for coming. Um, I think, Fred, you really hit it on the head when you mentioned that the Middle East Strategy Task Force um, really tries to encompass the five different aspects of what's going on in the Middle East, not just the security side. Um, Often, when these issues are discussed in Washington, it's only a matter of military strategy without recognizing that there are all these these different pieces and all these different threads uh, that really have to come together in order to truly stabilize the Middle East. And so that's why I'm so delighted um, that Matt is here today and that Matt's uh, staff brought this idea for this discussion to us. Um, because the World Bank is doing a lot of really innovative things that they weren't doing even you know, three or four years ago uh, to address the, the crises in the Middle East. So I'd like to turn the floor over to Matt to talk about how the bank is approaching uh, the situation in the Middle East and in particular how the bank is approaching the refugee situation there.
2: Well, thank you, Jessica, and thank you, Mr. Ambassador, for the kind introduction. Uh, when someone like you thanks someone like me for their public service, I feel a little bit embarrassed because mine is not even a fraction of what you've uh, what you've done over the years. So thank you very much. Uh, and thanks to the Atlantic Council for uh, convening this. This is, I think, an important discussion, one we've been having internally at the bank quite a bit for a while now, and I'm really eager to have it with Manal and with Chris and Jessica and, and have it more in depth. What I want to do is talk just a little bit about how the World Bank is thinking about uh, its efforts in the Middle East right now and in particular and how it's responding to the refugee crisis that we're seeing and as Jessica mentions this is something that we're doing differently than we have in the past and we are very eager to get feedback and to keep engaging with many other stakeholders and strategic partners as we go forward to make sure that we're as impactful as we can be. Um, in the midst of the many efforts that are going on to resolve the many components of the crisis that Jessica refers to. Uh, So what I wanna do is talk a little bit about the bank's uh, approach and the bank's focus and then leave a lot of time for both my uh, fellow discussants to talk and then for us to have a, a larger conversation. And essentially what I would start with is just the very simple point that the bank is all about economic development. That's our core mission. So while there's a humanitarian component to this, there's clearly a political component, we are are very focused on how we can further economic development in the region, and specifically among those communities that are hosting so many refugees. So uh, we would start with the general uh, uh, obvious point that large-scale crises like what we're seeing right now in the Middle East require systemic responses. It's not the bank that's gonna fix this, it's no one bilateral engagement that's going to fix this it really has to be a systemic response and when we think about that we say where are the the bank's strengths how can the bank uh, play a a role here and we think about a couple of things first we have financial heft the bank does about 60 billion a year that was fiscal year 15 uh, in loans and investments so we have real financial heft and about a third of that was directly to private sector actors so we've got the engagement there as well Uh, I would say the second strength besides the financial heft is our global expertise. We have for 70-some years now been looking at situations uh, all across the spectrum, all across the world, and we've certainly seen an awful lot of incidents in the past that we can learn from and draw on in thinking about our response. And then the third thing I would say is we are a ready and able partner, not only with government entities, since so much of our lending goes there, but then also with the private sector, because we have such deep relationships in lending and investing and getting project finance from some of our private sector colleagues out there, but also with various other institutions like the UN, the Islamic Development Bank, and any number of other actors that are multilateral or that are regional. The bank has standing relationships there it can play right into. So those are three ways that we think about it. Um, now within our response and thinking about economic development the first thing that we do is take a step back and say so what are we seeing what's the basic research what's the data telling us and that starts to condition our response the bank you have to remember, uh, as as we often say inside, has more PhDs than any institution in the world. Now, we pat ourselves on the back for that, but the only point of which is we have a real bias towards really understanding exactly what's happening and driving our decisions uh, starting with the data before we jump out into thinking we know what a a response might be. One piece of that, for example, is we're looking at refugee situations. You've seen some of the statistics recently about how long a refugee tends to stay in a host community, and the number that's bandied about is 17 years on median. What I would say is our researchers would say, well, if you pull out Afghanistan from the 80s, which is a bit of an outlier in terms of how many people never went back, it's really about nine years, but the point is that's a long period of time. We're not talking one or two years. The interesting thing that we're starting to see, and this uh, research isn't all fully fleshed out, but I'll just give you a sense, is that One of the biggest indicators for someone returning to their home country is how well they've fared economically or how well they've been accepted into their host community, which is counterintuitive because a lot of people say, I want someone to go back. We don't want them to get too comfortable here. But if you think about it, the only way you go back home and rebuild your house is if you've accumulated some wealth, you've accumulated some capital, so you can go back and actually uh, re-enter your home community. So this is counterintuitive, but starts to drive an awful lot of our thinking in terms of policies we'd recommend and things we might say to host governments who are absorbing so many refugees. So we start from that perspective and that is drives an awful lot of what we do. Uh, and then we take a look and say, so what are the needs that are in the particular community, what are the assets in the community, how do we play into that? I would say, because I'm going to come back to this in a minute, that it's different in every instance. If you look, for example, at our interventions in the Ebola crisis, very different situation, that was more about preventing further economic damage as opposed to building assets and trying to create growth. The idea there, and I'm going to come back to a financial innovation that we've created that relates to that, is still in thinking about economic development, but that's more defensive and saying, how do we limit the damage from spreading uh, as opposed to how do we build existing assets or, or what we see going on. Um, in in a place like Jordan or Lebanon where we're doing quite a bit of work right now. Um, one of the things that our research tells us, and I will just put out for discussion later, is that within the World Bank and all of the regions where we operate, the Middle East is the least integrated of any region. So one of the things we look at when we think about how we can strengthen the economic situation of various countries is how do we increase that integration? Some of that is as simple as customs facilitation. Some of it obviously is political in the sense that there are quite active conflicts that are going on. But that is one of the, the base cases that we have to start with and think about how we can overcome a really going to create greater economic opportunity going forward in terms of our response uh, going back to the point of wanting to be systemic the thing that Jessica related which is very important is with Jordan and Lebanon and we just approved this as a board uh, this past week we for the first time are providing no interest loans or concessional loans to a middle-income country Now, the reason is that, historically, we have had relatively low-cost financing for countries that were middle income and no cost, sometimes grants, sometimes no interest loans, to low-income countries uh, across the world. What happened here is we looked around and said, in this particular situation, both Jordan and Lebanon had relatively high debt loads, and they were doing a public good, if you will, in absorbing so many refugees who were fleeing Syria. And the point that they made quite compellingly is, well, why should we continue to drive up our debt loads when we are doing something which is for the greater good? It's a very compelling argument. And part of what we said was, well, how do we think about this? How do we craft a solution where we can provide the funding and the expertise that's needed in such a way that it doesn't radically increase their debt load? Because the IMF is engaged already, and we don't want to go down a path where someone is imperiling their fiscal health over the long haul. So that's the stimulus. Um, Less than a year ago, I remember uh, flying to Amman and going up north to Mafraq and Airbid and some other places, and this conversation was just starting. Last week, we actually approved the loans, all of which is to say, to Ambassador Hoff's point earlier when we were talking outside, the bank has been able to move relatively quickly here and fashion something which is new and which is useful. What we've done since then is actually expand that to, with very particular uh, parameters around when we would allow that to other countries around the world who maybe run into similar situations down the road. So again, thinking about a systemic response is crucially important. Part of what we did as well is expand our offering to low-income countries, or our IDA countries, so that since so many refugees are in Africa, where a lot of countries that are absorbing them are low-income, we also are trying to solve that systemic challenge as well. And this in part goes back to it's the right thing to do, but also this is how we learn from one place to the next. So what we see in the Great Lakes region, what we've seen in Kenya over the years, uh, from refugees from the Horn, teaches us quite a bit about how we can respond most effectively or strengthen institutions in the MENA region now. Um, So we expanded the suite of, of tools that we have. And then somewhat relatedly, this also goes to the bank trying to be adaptive, we've thought about other financial innovations that might be useful. I mentioned the Ebola outbreak last year and the bank stepping in and trying to play part of a, 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 play a role in responding there. Well, one of the things that we've created since then is called the Pandemic Emergency Financing Facility, which essentially is an insurance product that countries can contribute to. So should they have an outbreak, a pandemic of some sort, they can get money very quickly. It's on what's called a parametric trigger. So most insurance works where you uh, have an earthquake, you have some other Catastrophe. an insurance adjuster goes in, looks at everything that happens, accumulates what the total price tag is, and once all that's done, then you get a check to address whatever the issue is. Here the idea is if a certain number of people die or if there are certain other triggers that are hit, you automatically get a certain amount of money. Why this matters and why I'm raising it in the context of systemic responses is that what you see in pandemics essentially is a hockey stick where when it takes off it goes up very quickly and the damage spreads very, very rapidly. The idea is quicker money coming in sooner through this PEF can stop that before things really take off and limit the overall economic damage. Uh, reinsurance companies place the uh, order of, of damage in the uh, trillions, in four, five, six trillion dollars that could happen if we get hit with another um, uh, Spanish flu epidemic, given how tightly connected and inter-globalized, uh, interconnected the world is now. So that's a little more than you might wanna hear about something which is somewhat separate, but it's to say that we are trying to think about multiple ways of creating new financial tools that go beyond what we've done traditionally in just lending to governments for infrastructure, healthcare, education, whatever else it might be. And this is really how the bank is thinking about a lot of things right now, is how do we think about a systemic response? How do we think about our capital coming in in the right way to stem some of these larger challenges that are out there, um, I won't go into great detail on Jordan and Lebanon other than to say that we are working very closely with the Jordanian government, with any number of other uh, actors there. Certainly, a lot of our countries, I represent the U.S., but any number of other countries I represent on the board are having bilateral discussions. But we're supporting the Jordanians' compact generally and ensuring that whatever we do there uh, bolsters not only the Syrian refugees, but also the Jordanian citizens as well, so that you see benefits on both sides, and that's hugely important politically, but it's also important from a basic economic development perspective. Um, in And uh, we can come back to exactly what we're doing, but the point is we dispersed almost 400 million just last week, or we approved it, it's not dispersed yet, um, to support the Jordanians in absorbing so many of these refugees and uh, continuing to grow their economies. Um, in Lebanon, we focused on education, and I would just say two quick things there. One, part of the bank's thinking these days is, uh, quite focused on human development or human capital development. And I would cite Queen Rania when she was at our spring meetings earlier this year. She talked about the refugee crisis not just being a development crisis, which many people acknowledge, but she talked about it as being a human development crisis. And the point that she made is that every year that a kid is out of school, every year that a kid's nutrition is not what it ought to be, you are stunting that child's possibilities going forward. And if we do not address that, if you look up in 10 years, you're gonna have an awful lot of kids who are becoming teenagers and becoming adults who are not prepared for the, today's economy and to be productive members of their society, whether it's the country they're living in now or in their home country. That uh, question about how do we address human capital and human development is very important to the bank on a purely economic basis. Um, above and beyond the humanitarian or more human side of it because you can't compete in today's economy if you don't have well-educated, healthy uh, citizens generally. So that's been another piece and is one piece of how we've been steered towards really helping strengthen the educational institutions in Lebanon, again, to the benefit of the Syrian refugee children, but also to the Lebanese children who are in many of those same schools. I think what I might do is stop there, Uh, perhaps we can come back to how the bank is thinking forward about reconstruction at some point when the conflict ends in Syria, uh, because we do uh, pay attention to that, but perhaps I'll stop and and we can uh, go from there.
1: Great, thank you so much, Matt. Certainly uh, not your parents' World Bank, the way that you all are are thinking about these things. Sounds like you're putting those PhDs to good use. Um, Manal, I wanna turn to you. Uh, Manal uh, is the chairperson of our working group on reconciliation and refugee issues in the Middle East Strategy Task Force. Uh, She comes to us from USIP, and at USIP, I know that you work very closely on the ground on a lot of these types of issues with refugee communities, particularly issues regarding um, reconciliation, and you're Mm -hmm. going to be going to to Jordan uh, later today to do some more of that work. Can you perhaps offer us a a comment on um, what you just heard from Matt and how that might affect some of the um, programs that you work on closer to the ground with regard to the the human dimension of the refugee issue?
3: Thank you, Jessica, and thanks to the Atlantic Council and the World Bank. Um, I think you know some of the issues that Matt raised were really essential, particularly in light of the shift. Uh, and, and one of the things I generally like to start off with is just looking at the Middle East. And I always remember Edward Said right before he passed away, he said, I can die and come back in 100 years and still start my speech with the current crisis in the Middle East. So a crisis isn't new to the region. And I think it really is worth us stopping and saying, what is new about what we're seeing today? And I think one of the biggest things is that it is layered on. It's a conflict that has emerged after several other conflicts, particularly the refugee crisis. I mean, a lot of these host countries were saturated even before the Syrian crisis started. So that's a huge challenge because of the layering on. Um, You have four civil wars that are still ongoing in the region, and you have countries that are very fragile, you know, whether it's from their own governance structure or because of the communities that they're also hosting. And that really creates a concern about how do you deal with the situation, which is always the challenge for a lot of the humanitarian and the development workers, which is how do you put out the fires but have a long-term hat on, which is a real challenge, um, mainly because donors also have a challenge trying to figure out where to channel that type of funding. Um, I think the other challenge that we're seeing is that most most of the organizations and in the institutions are built for rural refugees. So urban refugees is very new to us over the last decade, I would say. Probably Iraq helped build some lessons learned, um, but we're not finding the traditional camps. And anyone who's visited the camps, if you've been to Zaatari, it's an active city. It's innovative, it's entrepreneurial. You know, Chris will speak about that in more detail, but it's not what we're used to in traditional um, camps, so we've had to really push ourselves, how do we restructure our own institutions, our own bureaus, to truly be responsive? Um, I think there are two main messages I try to send out when we're talking about refugees, and I think one of them is, is that you know there's nothing more permanent than temporary solutions. Just ask any Palestinian. And so it's really important that as we're looking at structures, we keep that in mind, especially if we're investing. If we're investing so much in short-term um, housing and, and et cetera, it, you know, it doesn't really lead to sustainability. Um, and and as I mentioned, what's changed is the nature of conflict is protracted. You know, We're not, we're not going to see an end date to a lot of the conflicts that we're seeing. And so if we're dealing with protracted conflicts, the resilience and dealing with the fragility is a crucial issue. The second main message that I always like to give is that our sequencing, our, our mindset of emergency, humanitarian, we do peace building, conflict resolution, then stabilization and reconstruction, and then we get to development. Well, I've never seen a conflict that moves that linearly. Mm. And so we have to really think about, while we're doing humanitarian, how are we planting the seeds for reconciliation down the line? While we're doing emergency work, how are we ensuring that we're actually not harming and fueling divisions between host communities and between, um, between the refugees? We also have a, a challenge of those who've remained who may be bitter when the refugees start trying to return, or those who've remained who've taken over housing. I mean, we know until now with Iraq, that's a huge challenge. The demographics that's shifting in the region will really create long-term challenges when you put on the conflict resolution lens. Um, and you know that's why we called our convening group Rebuilding Societies. And everyone in the working group that I ran was very clear. The only solution is political will. Now, setting that aside, what do we do about the crisis? And that's where we start looking about multiple duty bearers. You can't keep turning and saying, the Syrian government is the primary duty bearer, or only Jordan is the primary duty bearer. The concept of duty bearer from a humanitarian lens needs to be expanded. Um, and I think it's also really important that we recognize that conflict is a reopening of negotiations of the social contract. The conflict we're seeing in the Middle East in particular is raising questions of what is the value of state. And so if states aren't able to answer that, particularly responding to the refugees, again, you're seeing more seeds for conflict down the line. I can go on and on. I think the final point I would say is that we know from lessons learned that investing in women, investing in youth, and investing in minorities is is a strategic thing to do. It's not only a human rights and necessary thing to do, but it's very strategic for us particularly because if we look at the conflicts in the Middle East, women, youth, and minorities are always red flags that if we pay attention to, we can actually use as early detection warning signs. So I think the investment in that has to be seen as a more of a long-term strategic and not just a nice thing to do, although I am a rights-based approach person and think it's everyone's right. <clears throat> but I do think it's important that we're also framing it in terms of our longer-term strategies.
1: Thank you, Manal. Um, Manal brought up a a really interesting way of looking at these conflicts in the region by asking what's new about the current conflicts. And one of the things that's new about the crises in the Middle East that hasn't been true for crises or wars in the past is the incredible level of technology available Mm -hmm. to um, people, not just uh, people in their homes. Refugees now carry with them mobile phones that are you know, essentially supercomputers and they become very important parts of their lives. Chris, um, you have chaired our uh, working group on economic recovery and revitalization. And um, in chairing that working group, you've taken actually a relentlessly optimistic approach to the Hopeful. region and uh, taken optimistic. some heat Hopeful. for that from um, some folks in kind of the more gray suited uh, corners of Washington. Yeah. Um, but I think that your message isn't. Interesting one. I was wondering if you could kind of pick up on that theme of the new technologies that are available and perhaps um, tell the audience what are some of the perhaps. Um, hidden uh, elements of the refugee crisis that are tools that we can use to deal with the crisis that perhaps people haven't thought of.
4: Yeah, thank you very much. And it is an honor to be here and to listen to you all. And one of the things that excites me so much in listening to you is that you obviously have done so much with lessons learned, but at the same time are thinking yourselves about new ways to come at it. And and I have to salute the Atlantic Council because this these five papers and the product that will come from out of it has been constantly asking what is new, as well as what do we have to leverage from the things we understand traditionally? And I think that's central in this era. The Atlanta Council is not our mother's uh, think tank any longer mm-hmm. either, and so I think it's fantastic. Look, I, I want to just caveat a couple words about technology uh, with a, with a warning that my good friend and friend of Fred's, uh, Lena Sergey Atark, uh, who runs Karam Foundation, which for me is one of the really most fabulous small but but growing NGOs that's helping refugees, particularly the youth in Rohanli, Turkey, and. and she will remind me that talk of technology is fine and great but there's a crisis at hand now there are people dying now and that's where all the focus needs to be and and to talk about almost anything else can make us uneasy and i empathize with it because i know when i talk about technology particularly in this town people tend to think well here's one more guy being rah-rah about technology and the silicon valley mantra of we're about to change the world and and you know you can get caught up in that and i'd ask you to bear with me a little bit on that one know that i understand it and appreciate it but two Uh, there is something very central here that should be all of our calculations as we're thinking about things which can be very serious and and terrible as we are with the refugee situation overall because to the question that um, uh, Jessica pointed out before, when I look at what's different now from any other time or before is that we have got these incredible near ubiquitous access to tools that we could not have even had a conversation about five years ago. If we were sitting in this room five years ago and we wanted to talk about economic development in the Middle East or if we wanted to talk about refugees, or almost anything else, we could not say that, as Jessica alluded to before, that two thirds of the Arab world literally have supercomputers in their pocket. What does that mean? How can we bring that to bear in very, very powerful ways? And I think with that, what is so important is that when you look at a problem of this magnitude of pain, the thing that technology really can bring to bear first and for- foremost is, is capabilities that can scale rapidly. I mean, that's the thing that's so powerful about technologies that you can reach so many people and put so many uh, uh, answers and solutions into more people's hands quickly and cheaper than ever before. And with those solutions also comes a much higher level of transparency because people can communicate very quickly about what's going on in the ground and report each other and accountability. It's hard if everyone has a supercomputer in their pocket not to be able to have a different level of accountability that's hardly perfect, but again, not something we would have talked about a few years ago. And I think, secondly, And this has less to do about the technology except as an enabler to something very, very powerful, which is it unleashes bottom-up solution making in a way that we couldn't have talked before. Bottom-up, people on the ground who have the greatest stake in solving the problems that we're talking about overall, and they've got their own expertise about how to solve them. What an unbelievable thing that this can happen overall. A friend of mine from Egypt, Dina Sharif, who now runs a a wonderful consulting group called Ahead of the Curve and helped with his paper, but has spent many years in development, had this wonderful statement to me once. And she said, so much when we think about crises in a traditional sense, in a a sort of a top-down sense, we think people are a problem to be solved. They are refugees to be solved, or they're hungry people to be solved. But when the bottom-up gets involved, we're not talking any longer about people as problems, but people as assets to be unleashed. And when you start to unleash these, which, which happens, I think, in very powerful ways, we're talking about something that has some very interesting dynamics overall. Now, there is precedent in this overall. UNHCR, among others, have done interesting tech-enabled projects like the Instant Network Schools that they did with Somalia where they actually distributed something like 20,000 um, uh, you know, like iPads and this kind of a thing, and began to allow people to get education involved. Uh, you know, their juries out on how well they work, but it doesn't mean we should stop doing it overall. Because to your point about how, what do we do, like what Queen uh, Rania said, about losing a generation education with near universal access to uh, to technology, we should never lose a generation to education because everyone right now is a device where they can find essentially all of human knowledge at their fingertips, essentially for free. And of course, teachers and other things can develop programs overall. To Jessica's point, 85% of young people in the refugee camps now have uh, mobile devices. Half of them maybe are smart devices overall. 50% of these young people use the internet every day right now. They're using Google, they're using Facebook, and they're using WhatsApp. But those capabilities are there in very powerful well. These young folks, for the most part, particularly from Syria, are incredibly come from a well-educated background, there's some amazing, shockingly depressing because of where they are, but talent and STEAM and STEM skills overall that is beginning to unleash in and of itself, and there is a global community of other tech-enabled people and entrepreneurs otherwise who are getting up in the morning, going to bed, trying to help these folks. In fact, I can tell you, as I'm speaking to you right now, the MIT Enterprise Forum is meeting overseas where they had 5,000, 5,000 ideas submitted to them from around the region last spring about how to help on little issues and big issues within the refugee situation right now. 15% of the, the suggestions that they got came from the refugees themselves. Almost 90% of them came only from the region. Some came from Europe. Some came from elsewhere. And these are very interesting ideas that can scale. Um, a friend of mine named Mike Butcher from TechCrunch uh, Tech has something that's going all across Europe and in America right now that is very engaged on Facebook. With um, refugees on the ground to help do problem solving and something called Tech Fugees. Again, Lena's program, Karam Foundation, has um, <laughs> this wonderful KLP, Karam Leadership Program, which has computer centers for the young people in Rahanli. And um, an entrepreneur from a Syrian entrepreneur who now lives in Dubai came in to kind of teach them how to use the system and everything else. <coughs> and by the end of it, he had 30 women helping his company virtually right here and then to help do work, to get paid for that work, and also to learn other skills that they have going forward. So I don't want to overplay that this is some great solution to the whole thing, but I think the last thing I would leave you with is that we're not only talking about, to this point, about nine years and everything else, we're not just talking about fixing a crisis now, which is the first and foremost more important thing to do and to help people in crisis right now, but we're actually helping a whole new generation think about a vision for a future, a sense of hope a sense of that wherever I may be, whether I get back to Syria in nine years or less, or whether Jordan becomes my new home for the next nine years, I have a future. And that, I think, is one of the most powerful things that's uh, unleashed by these capabilities.
1: Thank you, Chris. Um, Manal, I'd like to offer you the opportunity to comment on the same thing from your perspective. How has the technology revolution that's available to um, refugees and others in the region helped uh, change your work in terms of um, community reconciliation and dealing with the immediate problems of folks
3: on the ground? I, mean, I think it's helped in terms of access, and it's helped in terms of being able to have people participate, You know, particularly in terms of national dialogues. Um, I think it's, there's an important part or a lesson learned from the Yemen National Dialogue of not trying to make it too large, because at that point it's very hard to actually have solid agreements, and technology offers a solution where people can actually participate without having to be part of the negotiations. And you know the recent um, referendum in Colombia also shows that you have to do parallel the street on reconciliation as you're doing any agreements and I think that's where you find technology very important and particularly social media in terms of having people engage. That said, it's really important that we don't substitute technology for actual town halls and conversations and local councils. One doesn't replace the other. So I think it really is a combined approach and engagement that really helps. and, and again, I think technology is increasing people's ability to be heard. And you know, one of the things that I like about an old organization that I worked with, with, with Oxfam, was that it was an actual goal, the right to be heard, in addition to the other basic um, needs and services. So I think that the technology angle really helps fulfill that. Could I, if I can I just
2: pick up on uh, part of what Chris said? because. I understand when you're in Washington, the gray suits sometimes push us all down. But I, I really think it's important that uh, we do embrace that sense of hope, right? And not just because I'm an Obama guy and you know that was very important in 2008 in the campaign, but I do think that Um, there is a hopefulness and we have to grab a hold of it. There are two pieces to the tech tech component that I think we can't forget. One is, if you think about the economic opportunities that are happening in the region, in a place where it's very hard to move people and goods, you can still move bits and bytes. And so there is a real opportunity there just by virtue of the conditions you're operating under. And that, I think, should take us towards thinking about the opportunities in tech. Also, getting back to the point of assets, uh, I think I mentioned we were talking earlier, when I was in Jordan earlier this year, I met someone who's got a trade association essentially of gamers, people who are designing uh, video games. There are 4,000 members, 4,000 just in Jordan. Mm -hmm. That's just an asset that's waiting to be utilized or waiting to be tapped. Shaquille O'Neal has a partnership with a Jordanian gaming company that's trying to sell into the entire region. This is just something if you don't go to that and you don't grab a hold of it, you're missing something which is just waiting for, uh, for, for development.
1: Thanks. You know, uh, this conversation really um, brings out the fact that the individual is more empowered than an individual has ever been in human history, perhaps. Um, Even individuals who are in terrible situations such as being, you know, forced by conflict from their homes. Um, However, the bank as an institution is one that very much came out of a particular time and, and, and place in history, one that was very state-centric and was focused on top-down issues, yet um, in this environment where the individual is very empowered, but also where non-state actors, particularly in the Middle East, are having um, more and more salience. Um, and you have single country conflicts, like Syria, where you know there, there aren't two state parties to a conflict. How is the bank um, thinking about how it can be effective in an environment that is, in many ways, quite different from the one in which it was founded.
2: So I'd say a couple of things. One, we certainly are changing and adapting. As I mentioned, most of our lending goes directly to states, but a third does go to private enterprise. That's a development that uh, took place some decades ago, but it's something that if you talk to anyone in the development field, they talk about this idea of going from billions to trillions. If we're truly going to achieve the economic uh, growth that we can throughout the developing world, it's not going to be the billions of official development assistance. It's going to be the trillions of private enterprise coming in and playing a much bigger role. So the question we ask ourselves is, how do we catalyze more of that? I mentioned the somewhat innovative uh, insurance project uh, product we've created for well, on the healthcare side. I've talked about trying to come up with a response for middle-income countries who are dealing with refugees. So we have to be more creative in how we do a number of things. So that, that's one. Uh, The second thing I would say is we think about non-state actors of a different sort, uh, multilateral institutions. And as a lot of people talk right now about the overall decline in globalization and their uh, decline in trade flows, decline in FDI, decline in official development assistance, there are any number of things where we're seeing more protectionism, we're seeing a bit of a pulling back. The non-state actors that are here now that weren't here a 100-some years ago and last time we saw a waning of globalization are the World Bank, the IMF, ASEAN, the Islamic Development Bank, the African Development Bank, the Organization of American States, the African Union, all of these other regional and truly global multilaterals who are part of the systemic response. And so that's the thing we're thinking about. How do we partner more effectively there? And that's where, under Jim Kim and Ban Ki-moon's leadership, the bank has more closely aligned with the UN and realized there are things that are humanitarian where we shouldn't do, but we should be thinking about the development side of things while we're addressing the humanitarian side of things in order to have the right response broadly. So I would say it's a deepening of our engagement and deepening of our real institutionalized partnerships with those kinds of non-state actors.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, Now, another issue that's looming large in the Syrian crisis in particular, but throughout the region um, in places where we have conflict is the immense amount of money that it's going to take to reconstruct and reconstitute these societies. Um, How is the bank, thinking about that, and how do these non-state actors that we've been talking about play into that process of reconstruction?
2: So I'll say one thing, two things about that. One, certainly that's part of the overall equation, and we have to think about the reconstruction at some point. We have to certainly learn from what we've seen and done in Iraq and other places to inform what it is that we do when we get to that point. But the way that we think about it is through our lens yet again. I hate to be a a one-note singer up here. But we think about the economic opportunity. And part of what you're going to see when the conflict in Syria Uh, comes to a close, or at least lessens, is the reopening of a market. When you go to an awful lot of countries in the region, and many of you all know this more than me, they say, look, two of our biggest markets were Iraq and Syria. They've essentially been closed off. This is the opportunity. How do we re-engage? And again, to the point of the Middle East being the least integrated of any region where the World Bank works, we are thinking as well about how do we restitch a lot of those connections? How do we increase the commercial engagement? Those of us who haven't been in Washington quite so long, like myself, are still quite hopeful that actually deeper economic ties and, and increasing the commercial engagement between countries does, over time, have a positive impact on the political relations between those countries. So uh, that's the lens we start with and is one piece of what we've been thinking about broadly. Um,
1: Manal and Chris, I want to give you the opportunity to comment on that before we go to questions. And so I would uh, present to the both of you, what can we do now to empower folks to be a part of that reconstruction of their own societies? Because I think we all understand the world is in a very different place from where it has been in other kind of post-conflict situations. And there's not large amounts of money um, waiting to come in from the outside. And a lot of this work is going to have to be done from the ground up by folks in those societies. So how can we best prepare them uh, to take on that load?
3: Well, I think that there's a couple of things. One is, um, what was significant about the World Humanitarian Summit that took place in May, Um, And, you know, there were a lot of challenges with the summit, but it was the first time that the humanitarian community came together. And and one of my favorite outcomes was that 25% was dedicated to local organizations for all um, international funding. And I think that's absolutely essential that we begin to shift. And when we're saying, you know, 25% going to local organizations, recognizing that doesn't mean subcontracting or contracting, but actually working with the local organizations to design programs and design responses. Um, what I am, um, if I were to look for silver lining in crisis, is that it's forcing us to reform our institutions and us to reform our systems as well. And again, even just the way we're geographically divided isn't necessarily lending support to what we're seeing. I mean, when you see Yemen, Yemenis um, going to Somalia and t- traditionally Middle East is separate, you know, we're not looking at North Africa as North Africa. And when you're looking at the Libyan refugee crisis, we should be looking into the Sahel. So the way we're divided is now into question, both bilaterally and multilaterally, which, which I think is a positive. Uh, one of the things that really strikes me when I'm doing interviews with people on the ground about what they would see changing their situation is the amount that corruption comes up. Corruption is a huge challenge over and over. I've heard, and in fact, one Iraqi um, MP said, you know, more dangerous for Iraq than terrorism is corruption. And you hear that often in the region. So, you know, how we actually deal with that. Um, I do wanna say, a, a lot of the challenges we're seeing, as you say, globalization pulling back, and you know this idea that integration has failed, and you're seeing all these sub-identities coming out very strongly, um, I do think it is an indicator of the failure of the state. So again, how do we challenge ourselves to rethink what state looks like? What is the social contract? Again, and overall, who's the duty bearer? Uh, and you know, with the non-state actors stepping out, I mean, I remember interviewing um, a young woman, and she was saying, I'll always go to the informal justice sector, even though I know it's slower and it's, you know, I'm sorry, it's not slower, even though I know it's going to be a disadvantage for me as a woman because the formal system is so corrupt and so slow. So, I mean, really going to the roots of the fragility framework I think is essential because otherwise, we, I mean, there's just no way we will raise the funds to deal with this humanitarian crisis. The demand you know curve goes far away between what we're able to do. The only way to solve this is to actually solve the fragility and the conflict situations from the roots. Chris, you know, I comment? defer
4: completely uh, to th- these folks who have much more knowledge than I ever possibly have about what's on the ground and all, and, and so I do it. So maybe what, what I'd look at a little bit differently for my lens is two cautions. And, and caution one is, I think in Washington in particular, but I think all of us in human nature, like to drive by analogy. So I can tell you nothing puts what limited hair I have left on its end mm-hmm. than when I get called in to talk about things like cyber issues and someone will sit across the table from me and say, what we need is a salt treaty of cyber, and I really want to cry. Because at the end of the day, the differences between nuclear arms in the 1970s and the the, the widespread network and non-state actors and a hundred other things about cyber means if you look at it in that analogy, you're going to actually miss what is new and different. You're not going to look at it in the same way. Similarly, a lot of people talk about that there's going to need to be a Marshall Plan of this. And I, and I caution that, that the idea that this, this will obviously take a tremendous amount of money, but the Marshall Plan of like a massive, yet again, top-down thing not only begs a lot of risk about corruption, but also begs a lot of things, which frankly, um, which is my second point in a way, that um, uh, Poverty, Inc., for those of you who have not seen the documentary, it's it's worth actually seeing overall, opens up a lot of unintended consequences. And these could be very good intended, amazingly powerful organizations who, at the end of the day, when you come in top down, as opposed to figuring out ways with innovation, with technology, and with kind of bottom-up ideation, it can actually take a lot less money, and more importantly, it's owned, by the ground, and it has a multiplier effect. So that which you think takes a billion dollars could take a fraction of that, Mm -hmm. because it actually starts to sustain itself in very powerful ways. And to constantly be checking ourselves about analogy and the unintended consequences and what can be done bottom up, and again, forgive me, leveraging technology, would be the thing that I'd be keep pushing back in as I think about this problem. if I could uh, pick up on both
2: these points, Uh, I think you're exactly right that when we start putting dollar figures out, it gets some people excited, it gets some people very scared, but to Manal's point about uh, institution building and about the social contract, one of the things we do know is that regardless of how much money comes in or how the political process plays out, if you don't have strong rule of law, if you don't have uh, strong financial (laughs) financial systems and capital markets, there's some really (laughs) fundamental things related to governance and related to the fair judiciary, as you mentioned, and so on, which is fundamental for attracting any sort of private capital, capital isn't interested in coming in that probably tells you something and so that's the other piece that we have to keep going back to and really is part of the bank's uh, overall MENA strategy right now does start with thinking about the social contract contract and that institution building so that is a very important reminder that we have to go back to the basics and remember it's not all the exciting I've built a new project it's do, do the bureaucracies function effectively? Can you start a business easily, or does it take you three years to start a business? We're not going to get a whole lot of entrepreneurialism if it, there are too many hoops to jump through and it takes me 36 months to start my business. So, some the rule of, it's of law really doesn't does it sec-
4: require 40 billion. I mean, rule of yeah. law correct. is free. Correct. I agree with you completely, yeah, but yeah, just to yeah. drive that point home. Yeah.
1: All right, so we're hearing that really the role of the top-down is to enable the bottom-up in reconstructing these societies. I want to move to audience questions. We've got uh, microphones going around, so raise your hand. I see Jean in the back.
5: Thank you, Jessica. Uh, Thanks to the panelists, Nice, great work. Uh, I just got back from three months in Jordan on a workforce development project and a couple weeks in Lebanon picking up trash. (laughs) It was uh, good to be in the region again, get to feed on the ground. Couple observations. One is I love the World Bank but they should be taking a real leadership role in coordinating with the Jordanian government the aid that's coming into the country. Jordan is now the largest recipient of a billion dollars of U.S. foreign assistance. USAID is a mess. Uh, in terms of actually being able, you know, they talk about M&E all the time, monitoring metrics and evaluation, but their ability to actually show where they've improved uh, outcomes for either refugees or the host communities is negligible. Mm-hmm. And I think the, a critical factor here is being able to coordinate all of the different aid donors and what they're doing so there's not only not less overlap, but there's more integration. And this is where technology becomes very important. Uh, it's hard to talk about a social contract when a 30-year population are not locals. So I think that with regard to human rights and with regard to economic development, with regard to uh, asserting that we have to start with the grassroots, one has to come up with different models than we've had in the past. We talk about empowering local communities. Uh, 80% of the refugees in Jordan are not living in in the camps. They're living in local communities. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of resentment in those communities. So if you're going to start with a social contract, the first thing is building relationships between Jordanians and Syrians. It was a simple thing. The, the, The Germans, the French, the Norwegians, the Japanese, are all providing training to refugees in camps. But no one's doing job placement there's a real disconnect there. So this is where I think the integration that the bank can provide, because they're the big gorilla. Mm -hmm. Everybody, you know, pays attention to the bank when it speaks, and so if the bank could do more to bring together more integration and more coordination among donors would be a big benefit. Mm -hmm. And with regard, and I think more and more has to be done on conflict resolution in the communities. Mm -hmm. There's, it's easy to talk about Well, we're going to, because I'm also on the American Task Force for Lebanon, and I work on those issues in Lebanon. It's real easy to talk about empowering the local communities mm-hmm. and another thing to do it. The reality in Jordan is that its GDP has gone through the floor because its traditional business in Iraq and Syria is dead and its trade routes to Europe through Syria are dead. Mm-hmm. And so it's hard to say to people, hey, let's have hope mm-hmm. because we're giving you a supercomputer that's, what, what how's the supercomputer going to move my tomatoes? You know, how's it going to change the education that my child used to have for six hours a day that's now three hours a day? Mm-hmm. So I think we have to do the best of our big thinking and grassroots thinking at the same time. <laughs> and I think this is what's so important to have the big thinkers and the grassroots people together. Because that's, that's where it's going to happen. And, and the saddest part for me is that this took a generation to create, it's going to take another generation to clean it up. <laughs> and so the more effective we can be, the more sustainable we can be in our solutions, I think the, the better the outcomes are going to be. So if I could... but
2: Yeah, go ahead, Mark appreciate it first of all um donor coordination is something that we try to do in a lot of places we're not necessarily the lead or the one that uh everyone turns to but that's certainly something that uh, the bank is is a part of in a lot of places and i will certainly uh, take back your insights to some of my uh, my colleagues back at the bank. I would say a couple of things. On conflict resolution, I might leave it to Manal to address that a bit. It's not something the bank is as expert at generally, but I would say that your points about just the fundamentals of how you can deliver on behalf of the entire community, uh, at least this is the way I was hearing part of what you're saying, is hugely important. So, for example, when I was in northern Jordan, it was last fall, I believe it was, the mayor of Irbid had a whole list of municipal projects he needed done. For him, it's really fundamental. If he can deliver to his constituents, if you will, by uh, increasing the sewage lines, by building a hospital or school, by widening roads, by doing trash pickup, all the fundamentals that matter for municipal works, that is to the benefit of both those refugees living there and to the Jordanian citizens. Uh, who who he is uh, responsive to. So those kinds of things are hugely important. Reopening the road from Amman to Baghdad allows someone to access that market. It's really some of those fundamental pieces that we're focused on because you do want whoever you're working with to be able to show that they've been able to deliver something. The hope of course is that jobs come along with that and then you have to think about labor market reform so that it's not just one group has access to those jobs that come. So clearly there are a number of pieces, but I agree when I talk uh, somewhat flippantly about hope it's really grounded in being able to deliver some of those things so that the hope becomes justified over time. Uh, but this is, it's the nuts and bolts that really matter, and that is what we're we're focused on ultimately.
3: Yeah, and I would say, I mean, to pick up on your point on the social contract, I mean, I think the biggest challenge is we're looking at protracted conflict. We're not looking at anything that's going to end anytime soon. So we can't press a pause button and say, we'll talk about social contracts once this is solved. You actually have to talk to the non-nationals as well. And like you pointed out, I think a very important point of how the host communities feel, how they can absorb and how they can be better prepared, but also how they can integrate. And you know, whenever people talk about the Syrian conflict or even the Iraq conflict, I always insist on an S at the end, right? Because it's conflict. There are so many conflicts that are emerging as a result of the larger political conflict. So for example, in Qataniya on the border of Syria, no one wanted to talk about regime change or opposition. They wanted to talk about roads opening because there had been a blockade. They wanted to talk about how they could have some families resettle between the Arab and the Kurdish homes. And that was predominantly what we were doing. So the local level reconciliation is absolutely essential. In Iraq and Spiker, it was, you know, as, again, the stabilization, all that sequencing is out. So as one area is liberated and people are returning, there's revenge killings. There's all kinds of new conflicts that can emerge. one of the things that we emphasize is how do you do reconciliation for the local small conflicts that are emerge. The hope is that we're building muscle memory so that when the time comes for the larger issues to deal with, you know, particularly national dialogue or truth and reconciliation, people would have had the memory built through these local reconciliation efforts. Um, I do think that you know one of the the biggest challenges will be. Um, the fact that a lot of people won't go back. I mean, we saw this with the Iraqis. I mean, people talk about the Syrian refugee crisis, but I can swear to you, 10 years ago, we were having a lot of the similar conversation and almost the same wording. You can look at a lot of the humanitarian reports and the appeals that were coming out about Iraq. It was quite drastic, and again, we weren't prepared for it. We didn't know how to absorb it. And so I think that that's you know the the challenge is you know now the Iraqi community has reintegrated into the Jordanian and the Syrians will most likely do the same. Um, I will note, I mean, one of the most painful things to see was although um, Syria was never a signer to the UNHCR. Um, refugee um, commitment, they were one of the best hosts. I mean, they were absolutely phenomenal to the Iraqis, and in Beirut in 2006, they actually welcomed the Lebanese in, so it's very difficult to watch now, as Syrians are refugees, how mistreated they are by neighboring countries, and I think that reminder um, to a lot of people is helpful when they remember that Syria was absorbing and was actually a lot of the solution in the region, Um, not always a problem, not always a burden, but at one point had been an asset.
4: I, I just very quickly, if I, I could add, and, and I really agree with most of fundamentally with what you said overall. I just want to caution you that when you, you pretended to hold a smart device, and you said like, well, how's this going to help my, there was a little bit of disdain in your look there. And, and I just want to caution you, because you actually can educate kids if you want to think about it in very powerful ways. There's a startup, no longer a startup, called Nafham in the Middle East, which is a supplemental education platform to help young people enhance the education they have, first in Egyptian schools, now in Saudi. And it's going to go elsewhere overall. Within like a year. 20,000 videos and classes were submitted to this platform, and over 30 million of them have been seen in the Arab world completely bottom up. And as far as I know, no one has talked about how can we unleash this into the refugee community. But it Mm -hmm. is the kind of thing which I think is out there overall. And even some of these hands, as I go across not just the Middle East, but I spend a lot of time in growth markets, generally speaking, the most impressive entrepreneurs that I see (laughs) are actually first trying to solve tough, kind of hands dirty logistics problems, and then you're using technology to leverage it. So of course, it's not going to solve the problem for a business per se that can no longer get through Syria to deliver it. But all of a sudden, technology can allow such businesses to find new markets. Or it can provide instant provision of microloans to help finance a period of time where they can do other things. Is it perfect? Does it make everything right? Of course not, not even close. But again, I, I, I challenge just the, us to have the ability not to just sort of say, well, it's just a smartphone, and how does that do stuff? But to ask a different question is, it's just a smartphone. What can we do with it? And those are the kinds of things which I think become a lot more interesting as we, as we move forward overall.
1: Next question. Yes, gentlemen here. And uh, please identify yourself when you ask your question
2: hello thank you all for coming my name is jesse i actually returned recently from jordan on on an 11-month trip six of those months i was working for the uh, executive representative uh, andrew harper Mm -hmm. as his intern and overseeing a lot of the movement on refugees to europe but one of the questions that i began to realize is a lot of people were assuming that returns were going to happen following you know this is a protracted crisis but following kind of the slowing of the conflict with hopes of dara refugees returning from jordan to dara however we didn't see that Mm -hmm. and my question for you all is can you comment on kind of the connection between increased development and encouraging refugees to stay in Jordan as opposed to return post-conflict. Thank you. Sure, I mean, I'll just say one or two things. I reiterate my point from earlier that people are more likely to return if they've been able to uh, accumulate some wealth or build something up because in so many instances they have to rebuild their home at the very least when they go back. Um, So certainly that's one piece and that's part of what we're trying to let people know and to think about the best ways to do that, uh, although it's clearly quite complicated. Um, The other thing is, uh, you know, I would... I would have to defer to those refugees as to the assessments they're making as to why they didn't go back or not. I mean, there are any number of reasons one could see where they just don't think, even though things may have quieted, that uh, there's a cessation. I mean, far be it for me to, to say why they're not going back at this point. I think we just have to think about what are the conditions we can create to make it more possible when they do make the assessment that it's, it's time to shift back.
3: Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that there, I think one of the, most difficult realities when you're interviewing refugees is the way they describe their experience is very close to a death. And so it's very hard for you to say, go back to dying. Um, And so it's what we're seeing is almost a rebirth, which is, is what the admiration that I have, right? You see the innovation, you see the resilience, but you also see a rebirth, and I think that's one of the biggest challenges is, it, is and you don't want to tell host communities this or, or host countries, but most likely they will recreate themselves. I mean, that's why you're seeing more of a push towards Europe, because they don't have a permanent solution, and they're recognizing that they can't return, and they don't want to be these undocumented, in limbo. Um, for such a long extended period of time. You know, again, the Palestinian refugee crisis is, uh, is live in people's mind, and so that's their fear. Are they gonna be sitting in these camps for 40, 50 years if you know, this regime goes on, the Iraq chaos that uh, you know, um, came across the world? So there's a lot of fear that none of the solutions are ever solved, what do we do? And so you're seeing this, this desire to recreate and rebirth their new life um, with the trauma of the old. I mean, that's of course the challenge. Um, so, I, I think I think it's a hard thing, I mean, particularly if, you know, I were to put on the humanitarian lens, it is a hard thing to encourage people to return when we don't have a clear answer on protection and security.
1: Uh, yes, this young lady here.
3: No,
1: she's got it. My name's Haley. I'm a student at George Washington. I'm a master student, and one of the questions that I just have is um, how if possible, are the humanitarian communities, and I know the World Bank can't really do this as much, but how are the humanitarian communities trying to help Western countries be more accepting of refugees and kind of try to change the mindset, especially here in the US? We see a lot of hate crimes going on in Western Europe. How can we try to change that through humanitarian discourse and through technology, through communication, and an opening of the lines between Syrians and people in Western countries?
3: Well, I mean, I think one of the um, most important thing is the messaging, right? Just looking at our wording. Um, And if we continue to talk about refugees as a problem that needs to be solved, that's that's how the public will see them. So the more we can um, emphasize the assets, I mean, everyone has heard people say, you know, you wouldn't have your iPhone if it wasn't for Steve Jobs, who was a Syrian refugee. And you know, there's a lot of examples of where refugees have actually really been positive. Um, I was a fan of the IOM campaign this year. I am a migrant, which really featured faces, really showed people as individuals. Um, But I think that that's really up to every citizen. I'm not really sure. I mean, it's more of a civil liberties an integration issue than a humanitarian issue, um, but there is an advocacy lens, but I think that predominantly goes back to the public. Um, the other thing that we do in, law, in uh, international countries is conflict-sensitive journalism, and I think it would be very helpful to target major media outlets and let them become aware of the wording and the choice so that there might be uh, you know, some type of cooperation with media on how they're framing the refugee question.
2: I might just say a couple of quick things, and you're right, it's not um, something the bank particularly focused on overall political discourse is not where we spend our energy. But I I do think there are a couple of things we can all look to. I mean, Prime Minister Trudeau really ought to be applauded Mm. for what he's done in very publicly embracing refugees and literally being at the airport when some landed to embrace them and to say, you're welcome here. I mean, some of it is political leadership an example. Mm. President Obama, of course, has expanded against some very difficult uh, opposition, the number of refugees that we're accepting into the US on a basis. So I think part of it is highlighting that. Uh, I would also point to, again, going back to our economic roots at the World Bank, what assets so many refugees and immigrants are and my favorite statistic about the United States that I don't think people always uh, utilize is if you look at the Fortune 500 in the United States the 500 largest companies in this country 40 percent were created by immigrants or children of immigrants we are not America economically if we haven't accepted people over the years and we have to sometimes point back to those bases because that is part of uh, one would assume people's self-interest to say, wow, that's extraordinary. And I'm talking about Estee Lauder and Goldman Sachs and Procter and & Gamble and really iconic names of, of U.S. industry. They exist because we've been open historically. And I think part of it is we have to take a step back and remind people that big picture possibility, those countries that succeed are countries that tend to be open, are countries that tend to be transparent, are countries that tend to be welcoming. And I, I'm not you know, trying to be a political ad at the moment, but that really is our strength. That's why we're so extraordinary as an economy. In a country. And sometimes we just need to remind one another of this and say, let's embrace and understand there's some risks and we'll manage the risk, but we are supposed to take people in. That's who we are.
1: Hmm. Any other questions? Yes, in the front.
4: Hi, my name is uh, Jack Kropensky, unaffiliated. Uh, a question
2: about language. How should we be using the terms refugee versus migrant versus internally displaced person? And you know, it's one thing if someone wants to say they're a refugee and they want to go back, but if they really want to be a immigrant, that's a little different than saying they, they want to maintain their refugee status so that they can go home. That's a
3: good question. Do you have a response? Or... Well, yeah, go ahead. No, no, you. So, I'm not sure I completely understand the question, but I think that um you know migrants tend to move willingly, and then the refugees are forced um and in turn are you asking about definitions or could you expand on the question a little bit? Yeah.
2: well, just how should we use the language I mean so that came up in terms of media so I mean, if someone actually does really want to go home, if they say that they're a migrant, does that kind of restrict their ability to return home?
3: It, so. Yeah, I think I mean you're, even if you're resettled, you're still a refugee because you've been forced out. Um, and I think that the, cha- the internally displaced people are the people who are internally in the borders. And I think being able to distinguish, because a lot of times when you're looking at just the refugees, that's where the funding goes. But again, to stabilize, you do need to be looking at the IDP situation, which are the people inside who are displaced particularly because that will fuel conflict down the line. Um, again, demographics are shifting. You're seeing minorities and ethnicities being forced out, out of areas that they're traditionally used to. Um, so you know, again, the, the way you fund and the way you describe the percentages, I think, will then influence donors and the support inside. Can I answer
4: her question, Just as I've been thinking a lot about it, because I, mm-hmm. I actually spent a lot of time thinking a lot about this overall. And the answer actually lies in a lot of respects with you and, and your generation and the technology tools you have to bear. Because I think how people are perceiving refugees is tied very much to how they think about the Middle East writ large, is tied to how many Americans view Islam. And, and like so many confusions and misunderstandings in life, it is a total lack of understanding and empathy because there's no exposure. I mean, there's not a way to really engage into it. And, and the media and the political environment adds to this. But I also want to caution us that sometimes we kind of write off unobvious communities who are actually thinking about this stuff in different ways. So it's a silly example, but it's illustrative in a point. I was asked last spring to give an address to a very large gathering of really conservative people, and I don't know why they asked me, and I don't know (laughs) why I came to speak about these things the way that I did, and I can tell you when I did speak, there were people who were dismissive of me, some people bordering on racism and what they said, but I cannot tell you the number of Ted Cruz funders came up to me afterwards and said, you know, I just was watching the Travel Channel the other day, and they had this program about, uh, about Ramallah. And, and, you know, I've been to Israel many times, but I've never been, I'm going to Ramallah next time because it really looked different. Hmm. Or I saw Anthony Bourdain's show on mm-hmm. Iran, and that's yeah. totally different than anything I see at CNN. Or other people say, look, I'm not sure what to make of all this, but all I know is my kids talk the same way you talk. Generationally, bisector and everything else, I just think at the end of the day, when people get a handle on circumstances in a way that they can understand it and see it in their own light, something very, very powerful happens and then the political dynamic changes. I couldn't agree more. There's nothing like having a president or a prime minister who can help, you know, be the leader to help put some fire, uh, gasoline on that fire. But I think the beauty, again, of technology is you can reach people here bottom up Mm. and be able to have different kinds of dynamics which I think are already, frankly, having much more than not, even though there are terrible examples that are counterpunches to what I'm saying, um, uh, particularly among your generation.
1: Great. Right. We have uh, time, I think, for one more question before Manal has to go to the airport and the young lady.
0: Thank you. Um, my name is Jennifer. I'm from the Embassy of Denmark. Um, you've talked a little bit about the role of the state. You talked about um, uh, fragile states and how to build institutions, and of course, states are very involved in organizations like the World Bank and the UN, which you've also talked about. And then you mentioned political leadership in the case of Prime Minister Trudeau and President Obama. Um, Considering all of the initiatives that you've talked about, though, that mainly have come from the humanitarian sector and the private sector, I was wondering, do you have any ideas about how states can support um, uh, the work done by these other actors uh, that do not include Simply you know accepting more refugees or donating more money
2: it's hmm. an interesting question um, I think part of it is working with them and embracing what they're doing. so if you see something if you meaning a state actor of some sort in a country that's hosting refugees, sees something positive is happening, let's say with a tech company that's trying to expand uh, Welcoming them in and not being averse to that, and not, uh, not standing in the way is certainly one thing, but I don't know that I have a really good, good answer of other ways. I,
3: mean, I think going back to um, what our working group emphasized was that if you don't want more refugees and if you don't want to put any more money into the humanitarian crisis, you have to have a political solution. That's mm-hmm. just the reality. Mm-hmm.
1: Great. And with that, I'd like you to please uh, join me in thanking our our panelists.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. you. Um, That was
4: fun.